All right, let's hear, hear again the, some of the words of Jesus in this passage. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. So we have been, and I hope still are, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just recognizing that we worship a living Savior, that we serve a risen King. In the book of Hebrews, it says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And so we live in the hope of the resurrection, believing that God offers us new life and life eternal because Jesus led the way by giving his life and then taking it up again. But what exactly should we be doing with that new life? You know, that's the thing I want to look at today, to look to that time after Easter and what Jesus charged us with doing in his name. Now, as far as the time after Easter goes, all four gospel writers <laughs> include the empty tomb, but then they, they differ from there in what they include in their accounts afterward. Mark probably doesn't include anything else, although there are a couple of versions at the end of Mark's gospel and lots and lots of scholarly disputes, dispute about that one. Luke includes passages that were read last week about disciples who were traveling and encountered Jesus but aren't sure who he is at first before Jesus then appears to his, uh, his inner circle of 11 at that point. The book of John focuses on really on the time Jesus spent in Galilee with those disciples and restoring uh, Peter and rejuvenating everyone's faith. I wish we knew more of these details. That had to be just a strange and extraordinary few weeks with this group of discouraged and defeated followers who are mourning the death of their leader, then become convinced that he was alive. And not only that, but these first followers of Jesus, who were Jewish, worshipped and confessed that Jesus was somehow God, which went so deeply against their religious training. But having witnessed what they witnessed, that was just the only possibility for them. And I think it was Andy Stanley who once said something along the lines of this. He said, listen, if somebody not only predicts their own death, but also that they will return to life, and then he actually pulls that off, well, then we should just do whatever he says. And that, that stuck with me because I thought, that's a pretty good bottom line for what Christianity is supposed to be about. Right? Christ is risen, so we should just do whatever he says. And what does Jesus say to do? How should we live as followers of the risen Christ? And that had to be a huge question for those followers of Jesus 2,000 years ago, who said, oh, Christ is risen. This is incredible. This changes everything. But what do we do now? And Matthew's gospel doesn't share all that much about what happened after Easter, but it does share today's passage, which is perhaps one of the best-known pieces of the New Testament, often called the, the Great Commission. 
And short as it is, these are the final instructions that we have from Jesus about what his followers ought to be doing in his name. These are the church's final marching orders, and as such, they deserve to be revisited regularly by Christians. So we're going to walk through and learn or remind ourselves, perhaps, what Jesus says to do. And so as we get into our passage here, the 11 disciples who are left since Judas has, has died after betraying Jesus, and he wasn't replaced until a little later, uh, they went to Galilee because that's where Jesus had told them to meet him. And, and some people see some symbolism in that because Galilee is Gentile territory, and part of Jesus' message is that this message is for everyone, that my, you know, my salvation is for everyone, not just his initial Jewish following. And so Jesus arrived, and the disciples had this kind of mixed reaction to him. Right? When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And that, that's one of those little details all over the Bible that I really appreciate because it's the kind of thing that you only include if it's true, not because it helps you sell the story you're trying to tell. Now, why did some of the disciples doubt? And the word here that's being used it doesn't mean like unbelief, like I won't believe this. It, it's more of a hesitation. It's like a lingering uncertainty. I'm not quite there yet. And so were they maybe not sure that this really is Jesus? You know, people kind of, his appearance seems like it was a little different afterward in a way people struggled with. Or are they, you know, they see some disciples worshiping, but maybe some of them hold back because they, they're not quite sure about that. They've got their Jewish scruples about, you know, about that. There's, there's not enough to go on to answer that question with certainty. But maybe there is a little reminder in here about the nature of faith that, that it's not certainty. That even Jesus' closest friends weren't completely certain in that moment, but they did walk away with their faith strengthened. So what did Jesus tell them? Well, first of all, he said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And at times in the Gospels, Jesus was a bit cagey about who he is. Not now. No normal person, no prophet, no great teacher would say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And if this authority has been given to Jesus, then he is distinct from God, as his disciples understood God, but, and yet must also be God in some sense, especially when we add his closing words, where he says, surely I'm with you always, to the very end of the age, which is to say forever. That's, that's a hugely consequential statement. I mean, if it's true, then Jesus has the authority to give marching orders to his disciples and the ability to empower them to do whatever it is he asks them to do. It's a life-altering statement, right? Is what Jesus says true? Does Jesus have authority over heaven, over earth, and more importantly, over me? Because if it's true, then I must become his apprentice. I must seek to know him and to serve him. And if it's not true, well, then I might as well look for somewhere else for meaning in life. Because Christianity does not work. It was never intended to work if this statement from the risen Christ is anything less than true. For those who believe this is true, Jesus then gives these instructions. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I'm going to break that down a bit so we can reflect on it. First of all, we start with that, therefore, go. And there's some tension in that command. You know, different Bible scholars will point out that the, the sense of the word is, is more like, as you are going. Jesus is asking that as we go through life, wherever that may be, 
that we would do these things. So you don't have to move to a faraway land to obey. You might only need to cross the room to talk to someone or knock on your neighbor's door. But it's also true that Christianity is a missionary faith, that some of us are called to go into different or unfamiliar or faraway places. Because if that wasn't true, it would be awfully hard to do the make disciples of all nations part that comes next. Like all nations. To the disciples gathered with Jesus, that likely meant to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. But believing that good news of Jesus Christ is precious, that it ought to be offered to everyone, the church has throughout its history tried to obey this quite literally, going to all nations, engaging with every culture and language. And the goal of this, Jesus says, is to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So we would, today, we would take our words evangelism and discipleship and apply this to this charge from Jesus. Evangelism is that intentional effort to invite people to have faith in Jesus, while discipleship is that process of instructing people to live according to the example and teaching of Jesus. Baptizing people into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is something that happens after a person encounters Jesus, often through the witness of a Christian in their life or the hearing of the gospel as it's proclaimed somehow. And Jesus wanted his church to reach out with his message, to be part of people coming to faith in Jesus and committing their lives to him. And the public expression of that is baptism. But that's, of course, just the beginning. Then comes teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And that is a never-ending process. There is no such thing as the Christian who has figured out how to obey everything Jesus has commanded, or who has learned to live their life in a perfectly Christ-like way. Now, God helping us, it is possible to keep growing in this direction throughout our lives and experience this sense of God's presence that comes with that, the wisdom that flows from that, other blessings that come along with this. But the more you grow in maturity the humbler you become because you just keep discovering over and over again how far you are from living and loving like Jesus. Now, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you is also something that requires community. Spiritual growth and maturity involves personal practices, but there are aspects of it that must be done together. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you assumes this, right? Jesus is telling the leaders he's trained to go and you know, to help teach others what he has taught them, to guide them in living accordingly. And so to be a disciple of Jesus should mean that at one time or another, we occupy both of those roles. Sometimes we need to learn, to be good learners, to give careful attention to people who have knowledge or experience that can help us understand and do what Jesus asked us to do. But after we've done this faithfully for a time, we should also set an example, and we should also be willing to teach others. And by teach others, I don't necessarily mean leading a Bible study group or preaching a sermon, although it could mean that. But a lot of this teaching happens as a church community just is together informally. We talk about what's happening in our lives. We share our experiences. We ask for or give advice. We pray for one another. We sometimes even challenge and correct each other when we have the kind of relationship that allows for this. And so there are many reasons from Scripture that would lead me to say that following Jesus must be done in fellowship with other believers as part of the church in some form. Christianity is not meant to be a just me and Jesus thing, at least not according to Jesus. 
All right, we're going to review before we lose the thread and then look at one more thing. If Jesus is risen, and we should really just do what he says, if we believe that he does, in fact, have all authority on heaven and on earth, what should we be doing as his disciples? We've talked about three things just now. Right? The first one was go. Be ready to answer Jesus' call. Go over to the person who seems to be hurting. Go to work with a desire to just joyfully and openly be a follower of Jesus. Go to the family gathering intent on embodying the love of Jesus. Go to a new job. Go to a different city. Go to a different country if you sense the pull of God's Spirit. So that was go. Second thing was to make disciples and baptize them. Be a, a, this is the way I, I think about this. Be a reason that someone else might turn to Jesus. Let your kindness and generosity be a reason. Let your consistent good character be a reason. Let your enthusiasm for Jesus and his church be a reason. Let your genuine concern for others be a reason. Let your offers of help and prayer be a reason. Let your invitations to church, to events, opportunities to be around faithful people be a reason. You can't make someone choose Jesus and go through the waters of baptism. Only God can really make the way for that to happen. But God usually chooses to use us as part of that process. Be somebody's reason. So go, make disciples and baptize them, and then learn and teach obedience to Jesus was, is the third. You know, to make sure you spend time with and listen to people who know more than you do about following Jesus and the truths of the Bible. And you know, also seek to just to, to learn from them and from that example to look for opportunities to offer any good things that you've learned or any experiences that might encourage the faith of others. And that whatever you do, do it in a way that you imagine that Jesus would do it to the best of your ability. So that's our recap of the Great Commission. And so I want to bring us finally, though, into the, the challenge aspect, into the question of how are we doing with it? How well is our little corner of the church responding to Jesus' instructions here? Because we ought to wrestle with that a little bit. Because the Great Commission is not a take-it-or-leave-it kind of thing. Jesus didn't start with saying, and if you feel like it, go do these things. The Great Commission is not just another nice list of things you might choose to do. It's what Jesus has told us to be about. It's what Jesus' church is called to be about. So is it what we're about? Because it's tough in our Western world. We have adopted so many of the customs of our culture. Right? We are immersed in a culture of comfort and materialism and a sense of entitlement and an extreme individualism. And so there's this serious risk, even for well-meaning Christians, to start to act as though all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to us to live however we please, and Jesus is kind of called on just to make our lives easier at times. And then, of course, what happens to the Great Commission? I mentioned before that a lot of the Great Commission can be broken down into those two concepts uh, of evangelism and discipleship. <clears throat> and so we can look at those two and say, how is Jesus' church in Canada, in Nova Scotia, here in Lower Sackville, doing in these areas? And evangelism is legitimately hard in this culture. Many people in Canada were raised with just enough sense of Christianity to have decided they don't want anything to do with it. And the more our society claims to be about tolerance, the more intolerant it's becoming of some of the traditional beliefs and practices of the church. And maybe your experience is different, but I find many people have a lot of, no, don't have a lot of desire or capacity to engage with some of the big life 
questions, or, or they've been turned off of Christianity big time by, by Christians, unfortunately, or sometimes are just weary or suspicious or even eager to be offended or outraged. There's, it's not an easy environment to think about, how can I say something about my faith? But the answer to this for disciples of Jesus can't just be to give up and decide that we don't actually have this responsibility to reach out to people. It's not okay also to just decide that this must be a job for somebody else. Right? This is what we pay pastors for, isn't it? So that should be how that gets done. Except that your pastor does not ride the bus that you ride or go to the place that you work or live in the apartment building you live in or babysit your grandkids. That's, that's your territory. That's your opportunity. And so Jesus' first disciples evangelized. They, despite the serious hostility they faced, the worst we're likely to face is embarrassment or maybe some crankiness. But what would it take to obey Jesus in this, to intentionally seek to be other people's reason to turn to Jesus? And let me just say that we lead in this in the joy of the resurrection and the new life. Some people try to lead with, you're doing a bad job, I need Jesus, and I, I don't think that's what anyone responds to super well. <laughs> you know, lead with, with the joy in your life that comes from him. Now, discipleship is the other side of that coin, right? Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I think we might score better in discipleship than evangelism, probably, in our piece of the church. But if we were outstanding disciples you'd have to think that we'd be more willing and successful evangelists, wouldn't you? And I feel like there's a lot of, therefore, room to improve in this. And we should think hard about what it means to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. Because, look, there, there is a kind of sick and sad version of Christianity in Canada that kind of looks like singing some hymns on a Sunday and doing some charitable things here and there that you feel good about, and then, you know, living a little bit more morally than we think the other people around us are living. And that's kind of it, calling it a day at that point. And that is not the same thing as obeying everything that Jesus has commanded us, is it? I mean, if you are a disciple who is taking care to learn a little bit about the Bible and what Jesus says, you will notice very quickly that obeying everything Jesus has commanded means living in a radically different way. How many commands of Jesus can you think of off the top of your head? Someone's, if you hear, hear that, you know, obey the commands of Jesus, what comes into your mind even? What are the commands of Jesus that you think you're supposed to be obeying? Let me give you a few that I got from, you know, I didn't look through the entire New Testament even. I looked at Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6. Don't be angry or show contempt for a fellow disciple. Be reconciled to each other before you bring your offerings to God. Not only should you not commit adultery, but you should not objectify anyone at any time. Treat every person as a whole person, wonderfully made in the image of God. Don't swear oaths. Be so consistent in telling the truth and keeping your promises that nobody ever needs to hear anything from you except yes or no, and they trust that you will do it or that you mean it. Don't seek revenge. Bear with an insult or an injustice while continuing to show love. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Rejoice and be glad when people insult you or persecute you or falsely say evil things about you because you follow Jesus. Don't perform your faith for others to see. Do all the good that you can do for those who are needy without seeking or desiring any credit from people. Forgive others as God forgives you. Be uncomfortable with wealth because only, you can only serve one master, God or money. 
Don't worry about your life or having what you need to live it. Seek God's kingdom and trust him to look to what you need while you do what he asks of you to do. Some of those are big. Some of those are hard to wrap our heads around. And that's just what you get skimming Matthew chapter 5 and 6, right? Think for a moment of what you'd get if you went through the whole New Testament. And imagine for a moment just how different things might look if we got really, really good at even just obeying these two chapters worth of commands. Imagine not worrying or being committed to forgiveness and reconciliation and just being free from anger and bitterness. Imagine being that hard to offend or outrage and finding it easy to return love for insults or having no concern for your image or getting credit for any good you do. <coughs> Excuse me. Or shaking yourself loose from our culture's obsession with wealth and material things which we mistakenly think will fulfill us. Or treating each and every person with the full dignity of, that God would want us to extend to them. Just being utterly free from any racism or prejudice or, or whatever it is, presuppositions about people. I know some of what Jesus asks is hard. Nobody thinks any of us are going to get it right all of the time. But Jesus, who has authority on heaven and on earth, not only gives us these marching orders, but promises to be with us always, to the very end of the age, empowering us to do these things and picking us up and dusting us off when we fall short. If we trust and rely on him, it is possible to live as this kind of disciple, not perfectly, but faithfully. And that's where the hope for the church is, the church in Canada, the church in Nova Scotia, the church here at Faith Baptist. It lies in the determined faithfulness of those who will choose to be disciples, not so they can punch their ticket to heaven, but because they believe that Christ is risen and his great commission tells us what he wants us to do. So if you've heard all of this before, this is your reminder. And if you've become complacent in these things, this is your wake-up call. And if you're new to all of this, then this might give some insight into what Jesus says following him is all about. And that's an awfully good place to start. Go. Make disciples and baptize them. Learn and teach obedience to Jesus. And Jesus will be with you now and to the very end of the age. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to, just to show each of us what we ought to do in response to God's word today. Would you join me just in a posture of openness and humility as we offer prayer? Holy Spirit, you are the one who can take these words of Scripture and bring them into each of our hearts and unfold them for us. Just allow us to see the truth that is there, the meaning that is there for us, and the, the way in which we ought to respond to it. So be, Spirit, I pray, with each one who would like to hear, who would like to do, who would like to know our risen Savior better and begin to live more in the way that he asked us to live. And God, for each one with that willingness, with each one who desires to be faithful, for each one who will ask for the strength to do what you call them to do, I pray that you would answer them in a way that they can sense, that you would empower them in a way that brings them excitement, that you would give them that peace that passes understanding so that we would see what is so hard to see in our, in our culture that is not making much room for mystery, for, for God, for more than running the rat race of life. And so go with us, I pray.
work on our hearts and minds. Call us back to these words of Jesus and help us to to find a, a way or two ways to go to someone who needs us, to be a reason that someone might want a little more of you in their life, and to learn and to teach how to be obedient to all that your Son Jesus taught us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.